right, the ordinance of covenanting. Uh, we're going to be up to week 33. So we're talking about covenanting recommended by the practice of the New Testament church. Fourth term of communion, public social covenanting is an ordinance of God, obligatory in churches and nations under the New Testament. Last time we looked at the issue of prophecy and how uh, Bible prophecy pointed to the um, the churches in, in, under the New Testament entering into covenants with God. And <clears throat> now we're going to look at this as an approved practice. Um, we're going to look at two things. First, we're going to look at the idea that whatever is an approved practice in the church, um, at any time in the church, if it's an approved practice, it is, in fact, an argument for us to do the same thing. So we're going to talk about that. <clears throat> and then we're going to look at... Um, Two things, the practice of the church in apostolic times, and then the practice of the church since the Reformation, right? So when we get to that, I've got a number of um, historical examples of historical covenanting uh, and things both from the early church and from the Reformation period. I'm going to read a number of these quotes if you want a copy of this. Uh, I could make that available, but I'm going to uh, be reading from some sources on this so you can hear that we're not just making it up, that it actually happened. And um, so we'll be talking about that back and forth with what the Bible says about covenanting and what it says about this idea of, of uh, taking hold of the promises of God. <clears throat> Right, so it's really going to be three sections that we're, we're going to be talking about. First, the idea of an approved practice and what that entails. And then after that, we're going to deal with the, the apostolic church, the post-apostolic church, as sort of a separate and separable, I should say, uh, we're, we're actually going to deal with the apostolic church in the New Testament some indications in the New Testament. Then we're going to move into uh, things that happen after the close of the New Testament, which is why I'm going to be making an appeal to later sources. You know, things that were written after the New Testament. And they're really to give, to, to um, show that this is an example. <clears throat> so if... If everything else is approved, then what they did at the time in the in the post-apostolic church and then at the Reformation, that has to be approved as well. We have to understand that that was approved as well. So God says, I approve of this um, in, in the Bible. Uh, we see people doing things and it's being approved of there. And there's no reason to limit it to that time and that place. Then it has application to us. So, question one. 
<clears throat> is the approved practice of the Church of God in covenanting an argument for our practice? <clears throat> and the answer is yes. The approved practice of the Church of God in covenanting is recommended to us by these two things. And these are the two things. First, it displays a voluntary regard to his will. Second, it exhibits his power accomplishing his purpose. I want to look, uh, for example, Deuteronomy 10, verses 12 to 20. I commanded thee this day for thy good. Behold, the heaven and the heaven of heavens is the Lord's thy God, the earth also with all that therein is. Only the Lord had a delight in thy fathers to love them, and he chose their seed after them. Over all people as it is this day. therefore the force of heart and be no more stiff necked. Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, and a great God and mighty, and a terrible which your God is not. And okay, so the point in, in this passage in Deuteronomy is, first of all, when you swear by the name of God, when you cleave to God, you are showing a voluntary regard to his will. You are promising to obey. <clears throat> Remember, God has <clears throat> God has absolute sovereign dominion over you as a creature. And he commands your obedience. But he doesn't just want you to obey. That would be a slavish obedience. He wants you to acknowledge that what he wants you to do is good, and that you would do it voluntarily. And the only way you're going to do it voluntarily, by the way, is if he, by his spirit, is working in you to do that which is well-pleasing. So, covenanting, entering into covenant with God, is in fact um, a matter of taking hold of the promise, and in taking hold of the promise, you're already demonstrating that the Spirit of God is working in you. Because most people aren't going to do this. Right? People, unbelievers are not going to do it. People in whom the Spirit of God is not working are not going to do it. So, first of all, we have the example of the people of God. <clears throat> while they walk in all his ordinances and commandments blameless, uh, which is a warranted motive to duty. Look, for example, what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11. 1. Paul says, <clears throat> follow him as he follows Christ. Right? He is setting an example. And he's telling you, the example I'm setting for you as an apostle is the example I have from Christ himself. I'm doing what he told me to do. And that should be an example to you. And this is why 
Um, and we're going to see this again and again in these verses in this section. Uh, this, this is said a lot, a lot more than people are probably aware. Uh, the Bible makes this kind of argument, right? That the apostles are arguing, I received this of Christ, um, therefore what I'm doing, you should do. Uh, there are other things that happen in the Bible where we see people doing what is right according to the, the law, the moral law of God. And we're to do that. Okay, so their practice in the discharge of the duty of covenanting accordingly is worthy of imitation. And to, to demonstrate this, I want to look at Romans 4.12 and compare it with Genesis 15.18. Romans 4, <clears throat> verse 12. And the father of circumcision, to them who are not of the circumcision only, but who also walk in the steps of, the, of that faith of our father Abraham, which he had which he had being yet uncircumcised. Genesis 15, verse 18. In the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying, Unto thy seed have I given him the second covenant. Okay, so what, what, does, what is Abraham doing? I mean, the first thing Abraham does is he enters into this covenant with God, and we're told that he's a father of the faithful. He's a good example of exactly what it is that... God would have his people to do and to be. All right. Were we doubtful whether or not the observation of the exercise were according to the will of God, we should not be encouraged by it. Right? If there's any reason to doubt that what they're doing is according to the moral law, that shouldn't be an encouragement. Um, look at Jude 10, or Jude 10 and 11. So we have um, a number of examples actually in the Bible of people doing bad things <coughs> and then very bad things happen to them. Right, the judgments of God fall on them. Those are all arguments not to behave in that way, not to do that, not to pursue that course of behavior. All right, but when we're assured of its consistency with the divine record, uh, then we're called to follow it. So look, for example, First Corinthians ten thirty-one and thirty-two. Verse 33. As I please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many that they may be saved. Um, so the apostle 
uh, the apostle is arguing there, and he go and he actually goes on then in 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 the verse one of chapter eleven to to make all of this that he's doing a matter of uh, tending to the glory of God. Right? Why should we follow what he's doing? Why should we behave in this manner? <clears throat> the answer is because of the glory of God, because we are seeking the glory of God, and he's a good example of this. So, their, de- their devout performances of the duty, then, present a reason for discharging it, strong in proportion to the force of every warrant which they had for engaging in it, but, though in accordance with these, different from each of them. So look, for example, at Philippians 3, 16 and 17. Philippians 3, 16 and 17, Nevertheless, whereto we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule, let us mind the same thing. Brethren, you followers together with me, and mark them which walk so as you have us for an example. So you need you need to have an eye to those things which are proper examples and um, are in fact good presentments of of what it means to be obedient to God. Uh, again, when you see people in devout performances doing what God has said to do and God is blessing them and God shows His approval of that. These are these are an illustration of the duty, but they're also they they form they should form motives to to uh, perform the same duty, right? So when you see it's just like this in really in in terms of any good and moral duty, when you see people who are engaged in doing something good, it should not only is it an argument for that thing which is good, but it should be a motive for you to seek to do the same. Now, it's true, we're not to compare the doings of men with the command of God. So, for example, 2 Peter 2, 6. Verse 6. Turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemning them with an overthrow, making them an example unto those that after should live ungodly. Yeah, the, the the fact is that the um, the things that men do, the doings of men, um, are only in fact of value when they are corresponding to the moral law of God. When people are behaving in ways contrary to the moral law of God, um, not only do they not form uh, arguments, you know, for doing what they're doing. They actually are forming arguments against it. And again, in the Bible, very often those things are met with divine judgment. We see, you know, the fire falling from heaven and things like that. All right. When he calls us then, we're under obligation to observe these when presented as an illustration of duty or as a motive to perform it. Um, uh, look at 1 Corinthians 4.16. Be followers of me. And why is Paul saying that? He says this again and again, particularly in 1 Corinthians, he does this a lot, <clears throat> because he's 
he's trying to um, get them to understand the need for following apostolic example. Right? But apostol apostolic example, <clears throat> when apostolic example is in fact mimicked in the community, right? the various churches in Corinth, when they're behaving like Paul, then their argument, they're, they're presenting an illustration of obeying Paul, but they're also making an argument or presenting a motive to behave in the same way. So, on account of the same reasons for which the Church of God in former ages attended to covenanting, we should attend to it. And we can see this if we look at Deuteronomy 30, verse 20, and compare it with Acts 11, 23. <laughs> yeah, he wants them to, with purpose of heart, cleave unto the Lord. Why? <coughs> this is a divine command. He's simply telling them, obey the divine command. Right? Do what God has said to do. And that's it. Well, why? Why should we do that? Well, we have the command of God, but for our purposes now, we also have this other interesting argument that the Bible makes. And that is, we are to do that which is approved of God in the case of other people. When we see that others have done certain things and God has approved of it, that's an argument for us to do the same, to behave in the same way. So we ought to do the same thing. And so Paul's point then is this. Just as, as um, the faithful people of God behaved in this manner in time past, <coughs> so too we should do the same. Right? That's what he's exhorting them to do. He's exhorting them to do um, not only what is commanded, but what has been illustrated in the faithful actings of the, the children of Israel. Um, and the fact is, we should perform it because of their example. As I say, beside the command, because of their example. Their example should provide an additional line of argument. And this is why I think the Apostle James argues the way he does in James 5, verses 10 and 11. James 5, verses 10 and 11. Take my brethren the prophets, spoken in the name of the Lord, for an example of suffering, affliction, and of patience. Behold, we count them happy which endure. Ye have heard of the patience of Job, and have seen the end of the Lord. That the Lord is very pitiful and of tender mercy. James' argument there is what? <coughs> he's arguing <coughs> he's arguing that the people of God have not only the command of God, 
telling them to do X, Y, and Z, but they also have the examples of the prophets, uh, the example of Job. Right? Job uh, d didn't curse God in the course of <clears throat> all of his sufferings. You know, he's an example. Right? There's, of course, there are plenty of commands telling us not to curse God, but Job is a good example of someone who suffered um, and suffered, you know, not necessarily because of something he did, but suffered because uh, God was was trying him. And at the end of it all, among other things, James is saying, look, here's a good example. Just like the prophets, these are good examples. These guys were living... Uh, and 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 abiding by the command of God. So you have the command of God, but you also have the example of others who have actually lived by the command of God. They've done what God said to do. <coughs> All right. Did they engage in it because of the manifestations of its obligation upon them made in the Scripture, and also on account of the approved practices of the predecessors? Look. At First Corinthians ten verse eleven. Yeah, so <clears throat> their course of action was at at the same time it was obedience to what God said to do, but it also forms, as the Apostle Paul says, an example to us. Right? They're showing us how to obey the commands of God. <clears throat> it's one thing to tell you that you must obey this or that. It's another thing to show you how to obey. So we should perform it for the same reasons and for this, this cause besides that they themselves engaged in it. Look at Hebrews 6, 11, and 12. Yeah, we're to be followers of them who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Right, so we're not just being told what to do. We've been given examples, and those examples are binding. They're approved examples, and they bind us to the same duty. Right, They call, it, call us to the duty. They commend the duty to us. And by their example, uh, they, they demonstrate the duty. <clears throat> All right, second. The practice of the church of God warranting to engage in the duty is a manifestation of divine favor made by him in enabling her to act to the fulfillment of his designs. So look at 2 Corinthians 8, verses 3, 5, and 16. Verse 3. Their power of their record, yea, and beyond their power, they were willing to, willing of themselves, 
Verse 5, And this they did not as we hoped, but first gave their own selves to the Lord and unto us by the will of God. Verse 16, But thanks be to God, which put the first, put same earnest care into the heart of Titus for you. So, the, the practice, the point is this, the practice of the Church of God, <clears throat> the fact that they did it, the fact that the Corinthian Church follows Paul's example, right? that they actually enter into covenant with God, um, these things are all indications, manifestations of the divine favor. Right? They're showing us that God was, in fact, working amongst the Corinthians. <clears throat> and the Corinthians are manifesting their reception of the, the grace of God in this way. Right? Which is what Paul expressly acknowledges in verse 16. You know, these, these are manifestations of the grace of God. These are manifestations of the divine favor. In other words, God has favored these people, the church. Were his people called to duty according to his command? Well, you know, yes. Let's look at Joshua 22 5. Joshua 22 5. But take diligent heed to the of the law, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, charged you to love the Lord your God and to walk in all his ways and to keep his commandments. Leave unto him and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. Yeah, the people were called to this duty, and Moses and then later Joshua, right? They're all calling them again and again to the um, <clears throat> to to doing these this duty, right? Among among which is covenanting. Uh, he vouchsafed the strength requisite. That they should obey, if we look at Isaiah 27, 5. Yeah, let him take hold of my strength that he <clears throat> should make peace with me and he'll make peace with me. Right? God, again, commands, and as Augustine said, you know, command what thou wilt. And give what thou commandest, right? Get, just or give or really says give what you know. If you give what you will, then command whatever you want, and I and I can do it. That's his point, and that's exactly uh, the same point we find in the Bible. You can't keep all these commands of God apart from the grace of God. Uh, you're not going to do it. You're not going to want to do it. You're going to be averse to the idea. But if God gives you the power and the strength to do it, <clears throat> then you'll do it. And so he vouchsafes the strength requisite for the people of God to obey. This is part of what is in this covenant. There's a promise uh, that not only is there a, a, a demand for obedience, if you will, there's also a promise to give you the power to obey. Were they attracted to it by the anticipation of good from him? Again, you know, the answer to all these questions 
the it's these rhetorical. The answer is yes, but look at Psalm thirty-one twenty-four. <clears throat> so there's there is hope that when we approach unto God, He'll approach it to us that He will do good to us as we uh, draw near to Him, and drawing near to Him is already a sign that He's doing good to us. So He afforded the grace by which they were drawn. Look at Jeremiah 31, 30, uh, 3. Excuse me, Jeremiah 31, 3. So there's, this is the idea, uh, again, this is the everlasting love of God for his people um, is manifested in what? That he's drawn them to himself. So, being drawn to God, being drawn to um, to the obedience of the faith, that is, in fact, um, an indication of God's eternal love being shed abroad on the, the, the individuals, but the churches that are, in fact, in view here. Right? So again, remember, the practice of the church, why is it a good indicator something to be followed because when the church is doing what it's supposed to do when the people of God are doing what they're supposed to do they are demonstrating the life of the spirit of God in them and so of course God approves of what they're doing it's, I mean his his outward approval <clears throat> in other words is only an expression of of what he's doing inwardly in them. Because otherwise we wouldn't obey. We wouldn't uh, do all of this. But he's drawing us with cords of love. So, through them performing the service, was promise or prophecy regarding it fulfilled? Again, uh, rhetorically, yes. Deuteronomy 26, 16, and 17. Deuteronomy 26, verses 17 and 18. Or 17, 18, yeah. Thou hast avouched the Lord this day to be thy God, and to walk in his ways, and to keep his statutes, and his commandments, and his judgments, and to hearken unto his voice. And the Lord hath avouched thee this day to be his peculiar people, as he hath promised thee, and that thou shouldest keep all his commandments. Yeah, so the, the fact is, performing the service is fulfilling both promise and prophecy. Right. There's a sense in which, <clears throat> if you can, <clears throat> if you can understand this, um, all of the promises of God are in fact prophecies, right? because the promise hasn't yet come to pass. But when God makes a promise, it will come to pass. Right. So there's a prophesying going on with that as well. And that's exactly why, by the way, when we look at prophecy, um, we can, to a certain extent, interpret that as a promise of God, right? That this will happen. Uh, <clears throat> right, the glory of God was displayed by him fulfilling his word. Look at 2 Chronicles 6, 14 to 17. Chronicles 6, verses 14 to 17. 
Thy most mercy be unto thy servant, that walk before thee in all their hearts. Thou which hast kept with thy servants. Even my father, that which thou hast promised them, is to kiss with thy mouth, and hast fulfilled it with thine hand as it is this day. Now therefore, O Lord God of Israel, with thy servant David my father, that which thou hast promised him, saying, There shall not fail thee a man in my sight to sit upon the throne of Israel, yet so that thy children take heed to their way to walk in my law, as thou hast walked before me. Now then, O Lord God of Israel, let thy word be verified, which thou hast spoken unto thy servant David. So it really, any fulfillment of promise or prophecy um, is a display of the glory of God, because it's God fulfilling his word. And, and when he fulfills his word, he's showing that his word is true, and he is a God of truth, and he is, in fact, again, manifesting his divine favor. Remember, the church is the the congregation in which the promise of God is going to be fulfilled. <clears throat> All right, because of the displays of divine excellence made on it, its performance by the saints, uh, contemplating their example, then we are called to duty. Now look at Jeremiah 6.16. Jeremiah 6, so, again, um, these are the two grounds, right? The practice of the New Testament church, engaging in covenanting, uh, to which here but merely a slight reference can be made, invites to the duty. Look at Song of Solomon 1, 7, and 8. Right. So again, the two the two things uh, that we should notice in this approved practice of the church is it displays a voluntary regard to the divine will which is what God wants from us and it also shows us uh, the power of God working in and through the people of God to accomplish that purpose in them so that's exactly why Walking when we don't know what to do, we're not sure, we don't understand how to apply this or apply that, we're to look to the examples. We have examples of things being done in the Bible. Some are good, some are bad, right? But the good ones are imitable. We should imitate them. All right. So that's the first question. <coughs> right. The second question then. Wherein does the practice of the Church of God in the apostolic times appear with regard to covenanting? Okay, if this is if there if approved practice is in fact an argument for us to do it, what about uh, the New Testament Church? Well, besides the prophecies respecting times of the New Testament, which we considered in detail last time, 
uh, but look for example at Isaiah 19, 18 to 25. In that day shall five cities in the land of Egypt speak the language of Canaan and swear to the Lord's hosts. One shall be called the city of destruction. In that day shall there be an altar to the Lord in the midst of the land of Egypt, the pillar at the border thereof to the Lord. It shall be for a sign and for a witness unto the Lord of hosts in the land of Egypt, but they shall cry unto the Lord because of the oppressors. And shall send them a savior and a great one, and he shall deliver them. The Lord shall be known to Egypt, and the Egyptians shall know the Lord in that day, and shall be sacrificed an oblation. Yea, they shall vow a vow unto the Lord and perform it. The Lord shall smite Egypt, he shall smite and heal it, and they shall return even to the Lord, and he shall be entreated of them, and shall heal them. In that day shall there be a highway out of Egypt to Assyria, and the Assyrian shall come into Egypt, and the Egyptian to Assyria, and the Egyptians shall serve with the Assyrians. That day shall Israel be served with, with Egypt and with Assyria, even a blessing in the midst of the land. And the Lord of hosts shall bless, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. Okay, so we, we, and we went over this last time. There are a lot of prophecies, Old Testament prophecies, about the New Testament church that indicate that the New Testament church will engage in covenanting. That there will be oaths and vows that they'll enter into. That they're going to um, they're going to undertake uh, to promote the the cause of the gospel in the New Testament era through covenants. Right, the practice of the Church of God then in the Apostolic Age. Uh, in regard to this matter, appears in several things. <clears throat> First of all, um, there are those apostolic admonitions which place covenant breakers or truce breakers in the category of men of the most depraved sort. Uh, and that, I think, argues that these remain sins under the New Testament. And if so, if, if breaking a covenant is a sin under the New Testament, then by reason of parody, <clears throat> uh, we can say that the making and keeping of covenants must be a matter of New Testament duty. So let's look at Romans 1.31 and 2 Timothy 3.3. 3. <clears throat> so again, if we stop and think about what's going on, the fact that the Apostle Paul is telling us that oath breakers, covenant breakers, truce breakers, people don't keep vows, that these these are sins. They're not just ceremonial sins, like, say, uh, some of the sins under the Mosaic Law. But these are actual moral infractions. Now, we've, we've talked about this before. <clears throat> right? Covenanting, which is just a broader species of oaths and vows. Covenant, covenanting is moral. And... The fact that the apostle is condemning the breaking of covenant 
reminds us of that. So it wouldn't make any sense. What the apostles saying wouldn't make any sense if covenant breaking were not still possible, right? If we couldn't still engage in that sort of of um, breach of the commandment. <clears throat> All right. Second, there are admonitions to duty for believers, which either entail or imply the duty of covenanting. So, for example, I look at Romans 12, 1 and 9, and Romans uh, 6, 13. Let love be without dissimulation, abhor that which is evil, cleave that which is good. Okay. So again, what do we when we when we look at these verses? What should we understand? Let's look at verse uh, Romans six thirteen. Yeah. Remember yielding. <clears throat> that language is um, language which implies covenanting uh, the idea that we would offer ourselves, our lives, a sacrifice to God. That again implies a whole devoting. And the way you devote something is by an oath or a vow, right? By covenant. Right. Third, there are examples of this duty implied in the language of the scriptures of the New Testament. So, for example, Acts 11.23 and 2 Corinthians 8.5 again. So cleaving to God, <coughs> that language in, in Acts of cleaving to the Lord, that's covenant language. You can only cleave to someone by covenant. Right? That's how you do that. There's a covenant implied in that. The same thing with yielding yourself or giving yourself to God. And how do you give yourself? Again, that, that's the language of covenant. Uh, it's also the language <clears throat> that we find associated with marriage in the Bible. <clears throat> because marriage is a covenant. It's a civil covenant. And so there's, there is an obligation. And there's, there's a promise in, that, that is implied in that. Right. To those cases that were explicitly approved of God, these all belong. Look at Hebrews 13, 7. Hebrews 13, verse 10. We're to follow their faith, considering the end of their conversation. What is the end of their faith? How, how they've walked? The end of, of what they've done is salvation, right? They've they've achieved or attained to eternal salvation, right? 
what they're doing then in order to reach that end is not immaterial to us. When they're doing things which are approved of God, which have the approbation of God on them, right? those are arguments for us to do the same thing or to do the like thing. There's nothing about this duty of covenanting which is, strictly speaking, ceremonial, right? Are there outward <clears throat> and um, uh, uh, are there, there um, uh, aspects of this which are, are circumstantial? Yes. <clears throat> but the substantial moral principle in all covenanting, in all of our oath-taking, is we're taking hold of the promise of God in that. Right? We're reaching out to, to uh, grab hold of that promise of God through which we will find the, the strength and the grace to keep the conditions of that covenant. This is a covenant of grace, remember, that we're talking about. So that takes us really to the end of the inspired record. <clears throat> if we're going to stop at the New Testament church, but we're not going to stop there. We need to go beyond that now and consider the practice of the New Testament church since the days of the apostles. Has the church, in its better times, in its purer times, in its more faithful times, has it followed uh, what the apostles were doing and what was commanded of them in the moral law, or not? Because if we find the church in more faithful times, in purer times, and in times of reform, if they're behaving in the, in the manner of the apostolic church, if they're following what, say, Moses and the prophets have said to do, then they too are part of this long chain of evidence that both illustrates the duty as well as forms another motive for us to do like. So, let's move on to question three. This is a, we're going to deal with a a little bit harder period of time, uh, but wherein does the practice of the Church of God in the post-apostolic times appear with regard to covenanting? Now, we're limited uh, to a certain degree um, because we, we only possess so much in the way of of writings from the ancient church. Nonetheless, what we do have is um, is in fact very helpful, and I would argue as we're going through this that once you begin to understand certain dynamics. that appear in the early church. Uh, Once you understand what they mean when they mention certain things, 
then you can see that there is actually, there's quite a bit uh, going on here where they're assuming covenanting. All right, so the practice of the Church of God in the three centuries immediately succeeding the Apostolic Age recommends the duty. I want to look at 1 Thessalonians 1, 6, and 7. We're just going to be, as we go through these, uh, we're going to be looking at verses in the Bible just sort of bearing up <clears throat> some of the points we're going to make. But go ahead. 1 yeah, again, this idea of the churches behaving in a manner so that they can be examples is something which carries on into the early church. Before the church gets corrupted, uh, before all of the things that, that will eventually necessitate the Reformation or at work, <clears throat> the church still has <clears throat> some sense of um, a concern that what they do is transmitting, is able to transmit information beyond their immediate situation. So, uh, creeds, confessions, and covenants obtained in that period. I want to look at 1 Timothy uh, 1, verses 10 and 18, compared with 2 Timothy 1, 13. 2 Timothy 1, verse 8. The charge I commit unto thee, son Timothy, according to the prophecies which went before on thee, that thou by them mightest war a good warfare. Okay, so <clears throat> one thing that we, we see early on is Paul uh, emphasizing what he calls the form of sound words. Right? It's not just that what he's saying to Timothy is enough, but he wants Timothy to understand what he's saying. Right? He doesn't just want him to hear the words, but he wants him to understand the meaning. And creeds and confessions, and as we're going to see in the early church, these were all adopted <clears throat> by covenant. So when you find creeds and confessions, <clears throat> there's already an assumption of some kind of covenanting going on, right? Um, that concern is already there in Paul when he's talking to Timothy and telling Timothy how to transmit the faith from generation to generation. Right? You're going to have to do this. And the reason Paul is telling him this um, you may recall in Acts 20, Paul says, look, when I leave here, when I die, um, wolves are going to come in. 
<clears throat> they're going to try to destroy the church, right? They're going to be heresies that arise. And sure enough, <clears throat> the early church, uh, almost from the beginning, is fighting with different kinds of heresies. And we've talked about those heresies in, in a different context. But in order to fight them, the church uh, starts to realize it's not enough to say, I believe the Bible, <clears throat> because the heretics will say, I believe the Bible too. <clears throat> they have to say, I believe the Bible means this and not that. And so there are summaries of Christian doctrine which are received and adhered to, and they're recorded by Irenaeus, Tertullian, Origen, and others. I'm going to read uh, just from a, a little bit of, of this um, from Irenaeus. Now, Irenaeus lived between uh, approximately between 130 and 202 AD. And in a book called The Demonstration of the Apostolic Preaching, he gives us this, uh, and they called it a rule of faith. But they're talking about a creed. They're talking about that key to understanding what the Bible means on, on certain important points. Like, what does it mean when it's talking about God? What does it mean when it's talking about Jesus? What does it mean when it's talking about the Holy Spirit? <clears throat> so here's what Irenaeus says. He says, God the Father, not made, not material, invisible. One God, the creator of all things. This is the first point of our faith. The second point is the Word of God, Son of God, Christ Jesus our Lord, who is manifested to the prophets according to the form of their prophesying and according to the method of the dispensation of the Father, through whom all things were made, who also at the end of the times, to complete and gather up all things, was made man among men, visible and tangible, in order to abolish death and show forth life and produce a community of union between God and man. The third And the third point is the Holy Spirit, through whom the prophets prophesied, and the fathers learned the things of God, and the righteous were led forth into the way of righteousness, and who in the end of the times was poured out in a new way upon mankind in all the earth, renewing man unto God. So, <clears throat> there's actually, um, there's a lot here, <clears throat> Irenaeus is already um, saying things that we're going to find in the Apostles' Creed. Uh, but he actually has more to say than, for example, the, the Nicene Creed, which was written in 325 AD. Uh, on, the, on the topic of the Holy Spirit, Irenaeus actually has a lot more to say. <clears throat> Tertullian. <clears throat> Tertullian lived between 160 and 220 AD. And in his book, The Prescription Against Heretics, chapter 13, he says, Now with regard to this rule of faith, that we may from this point acknowledge what it is which we defend, it is, you must know, that which prescribes the belief that there is one only God, that he is none other than the creator of the world, who produced all things out of nothing through his own word, first of all sent forth, that this word is called his Son, and under the name of 
God was seen in diverse manners by the patriarchs, heard at all times in the prophets, at last brought down by the spirit and power of the Father into the Virgin Mary, was made flesh in her womb, and being born of her, went forth as Jesus Christ. Thenceforth he preached the new law and the new promise of the kingdom of heaven, working miracles. Having been crucified, he rose again the third day. Then, having ascended into the heavens, he sat at the right hand of the Father, sent instead of himself the power of the Holy Ghost to lead such as believe, will come with glory to take the saints to the enjoyment of everlasting life and of the heavenly promises, and to condemn the wicked to everlasting fire after the resurrection of both these classes shall have happened, together with the restoration of their flesh. This rule, as it will be proved, was taught by Christ and raises amongst ourselves no other questions than those which heresies introduce and which make men heretics. <clears throat> Again, Tertullian is saying something very similar to Irenaeus. This is uh, showing you that very early on, after the, the death of the apostles, these post-apostolic fathers found it necessary to define the faith, and to have creeds. A lot of these things became baptismal uh, creeds, <clears throat> which would make them basically uh, confessions that you would utilize before you baptized anyone. <clears throat> All right, Origen. Origen lived between approximately 184 A.D. and 253 A.D. Um, he wrote a book called De Principius. It has to do with, um, it's really one of the first books on theology that we have extant from the early church. Origen says something very much like Irenaeus and Tertullian. He says, um, since many, however, of those who profess to believe in Christ differ from each other, not only in small and trifling matters, but also on subjects of the highest importance regarding God or the Lord Jesus Christ or the Holy Spirit, and not only regarding these, but also regarding others which are created existences, that is, the powers and the holy virtues. It seems on that account necessary, first of all, to fix a definite limit and <clears throat> to lay down an unmistakable rule regarding each one of these, and then to pass to the investigation of other points. For as we cease to seek for truth, notwithstanding the professions of many among Greeks and barbarians to make it known, we, see, uh, we cease to seek truth among all who claimed it for erroneous opinions after we'd come to believe that Christ was the Son of God and were persuaded that we must learn it from himself. So, seeing there are many who think they hold the opinions of Christ, and yet some of these think differently from their predecessors, Yet as the teaching of the church transmitted in orderly succession from the apostles and remaining in the churches to the present day is still preserved, that alone is to be accepted as truth, which differs in no respect from ecclesiastical and apostolical tradition. And he goes on to say, Every one, therefore, must make use of elements and foundations of this sort according to the precept. Enlighten yourselves with the light of knowledge. If he would desire to form a connected series and body of truths agreeably to the reason of all these things, that by clear and necessary statements 
He may ascertain the truth regarding each individual topic and form, as we've said, one body of doctrine by means of illustrations and arguments, either those which he has discovered in Holy Scripture or which he's deduced by closely tracing out the consequences and following a correct method. In other words, Irenaeus, Origen, <coughs> uh, Tertullian, they all have these, these um, confessions. They all have these methods. Um, and they've done it to oppose the manifestation of error. Uh, these would appear to have been made, all of these confessions and creeds. So look at what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, 19. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 9. <clears throat> yeah, so Paul warns that there's going to be heresies and that it'll be necessary for those who are not heretics to um, show themselves approved. And so that's what these early fathers are doing. Now, the primitive Christians, in order to the attainment of church membership, were required not merely to assent to such creeds or confessions, but also acquiesce by oath. I want to look at Isaiah 48, 1. Isaiah 48, verse 1. Hear ye this, O house of Jacob, which are called by the name of Israel, and are come forth out of the waters of Judah, which swear by the name of the Lord, and make mention of the God of Israel, but not in truth nor in righteousness. <coughs> the primitive Christians, when, when uh, Irenaeus or Origen or Tertullian uh, when they come to them with these rules of faith, these little creeds or confessions, they require them not simply to assent to them, but they're going to make them acquiesce in them by oath. They're going to make them covenant to them. Which is why, when we're going to see this in just a moment, but this is exactly why, in the course of... of um, these things being recorded by early fathers, when we see this, we know that they're requiring people in the congregation, the local congregations, to acquiesce by oath. Now, we know this, first of all, <clears throat> because um, the younger Pliny, uh, and he was a Roman governor of Bithynia and Pontus, which is um, modern Turkey, part of modern Turkey, uh, represents the primitive Christians as meeting on a certain day, which is very clearly the Lord's Day or Christian Sabbath, and among other exercises, then engaging and addressing themselves in prayer to Christ, binding themselves by a solemn oath to what we know to be duty. Now, for biblical grounding for this, look at Nehemiah 10.29. <clears throat> yeah, so um, Pliny says, and Pliny lived, this is how early this is, Pliny, Pliny, Pliny the Younger um, lived between 61 A.D., and approximately 113 A.D. We don't know exactly when he died. But in the year 111 A.D., this is early, 
in a letter to Trajan, <coughs> who was a, a higher Roman governor, <coughs> higher Roman, I should say, Roman uh, magistrate. Um, he, he writes about the Christians, and I, I paraphrase, but let me, I'm going to read what he actually wrote. He says, they asserted, however, that the sum and substance of their fault or error had been that they were accustomed to meet on a fixed day. He's talking about the Christians, right? The fixed day before dawn and sing responsively a hymn to Christ as to a God. So they're, they're, they know that they're singing responsively. That's the antiphones, right? They're, there's some kind of antiphonal singing. And to bind themselves by oath not to do some crime, but not to commit fraud, theft, or adultery, not to falsify their trust, nor to refuse to return a trust when called upon to do so. When this was over, it was their custom to depart and to assemble again to partake of food, but ordinary and innocent food. So, again, what, what's he saying? <clears throat> He's saying that they, the charges against them, and they had spies. They were trying to figure out what these early Christians were doing. Um, one of the things he said they're doing is they're, they're binding themselves with an oath. They keep taking oaths. They keep covenanting. To do what? Well, he says not to do some crime, uh, but not to commit fraud and, and theft and adultery and so on. What he is referencing here is this. It was actually... Uh, somewhat common among the heathen religions in the Roman Empire for people to take vows and oaths to do some kind of, of moral atrocity, in essence, uh, <clears throat> break the law of God under pretext of serving their God. <clears throat> They're going to do something against the moral law. But he said the Christians aren't really doing that. He said, well, these are the charges against them, but it sounds like he doesn't really know what to make of it. Uh, anyway, it shows us that early on, they're covenanting. All right, they're, they're involved, their worship service involves taking of oaths. All right, Justin Martyr. Justin Martyr represents baptism to adults as given only to those of them who vowed to live according to the confession of their faith. I want to look first at Acts 7-8, and then I'll read uh, Justin Martyr. <clears throat> Acts 7, verse 8. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision, so that Abraham begat Isaac, and Isaac begat Jacob, and Jacob begat 12 patriarchs. Yeah, so... Um, there's there's a continuity in Justin Martyr. Justin Martyr lived between 100 and 165 A.D. and he wrote a couple of apologies, which were early defenses of the faith. In his first apology, in chapter 61, he says, "I will also relate the manner in which we dedicated ourselves to God when we had been made new through Christ." And he, when he says we dedicated ourselves. The word he's using there indicates that they have dedicated themselves by coming under a vow or by taking an oath. Lest if we omit this, we seem to be unfair in the explanation we're making. As many as are persuaded and believe 
what we teach and say is true and undertake to be able to live accordingly, are instructed to pray and to entreat God with fasting for the remission of their sins that are past, we praying and fasting with them. Then they're brought by us where there is water and are regenerated in the same manner in which we are, were ourselves regenerated. For in the name of God, the Father, and the Lord of the universe, and of our Savior, Jesus Christ, and of the Holy Spirit, they then receive the washing with water. <clears throat> so here he's saying that um, in connection with <clears throat> the baptism of adults, there was, in fact, this expectation of covenant. Uh, and and I'll explain in, in a few minutes exactly what is going on and why with that. Um, <clears throat> right, beyond, be, beside Justin Martyr, uh, to the practice of covenanting by oath on the reception of baptism, uh, Tertullian and Jerome also allude. For I read those when I look at Ezekiel seventeen nineteen. So Tertullian says, <clears throat> and again Tertullian lived between one sixty and two twenty AD. In his Ad Martyrs, chapter 3, concerning the martyrs, he says, Grant now, O blessed, that even to Christians the prison is unpleasant. Yet we were called to the warfare of the living God in our very response to the sacramental words. Now, <clears throat> the sacrament, the word sacrament has come into our language from the Latin. Tertullian is the person who brought it. And Sacrament has reference to the military oath. <clears throat> so what Tertullian is saying is essentially uh, we responded in baptism by oath. That was our, our response to the sacramental words was we took the oath and we were baptized. Right. That's that's how we respond. Um, when baptism was was tendered to us. In his treatise on the veiling of virgins, chapter 2, he says, They and we have one faith, one God, the same Christ, the same hope, the same baptismal sacraments. Now let me say it once for all, we are one church, thus whatever belongs to our brethren is ours, only the body divides us. <clears throat> so again, when he calls them baptismal sacraments. He's referencing the oath that it was presumed in the um, administering of baptism. And so when we're talking to adults, when, when adults are being uh, considered for baptism, they are themselves to answer and undertake that covenant obligation by oath, by vow. When we're talking, uh, uh, and we're, we're going to baptize infants, that vow is undertaken on their behalf by their parents, and they are required in their majority, when they cease to be children, to enter into the responsibility of upholding that vow. <coughs> 
Now with Jerome, Jerome in his uh, and Jerome lived between 347 and 420 A.D. Letter 14 <clears throat> to a, a man named Heliodorus. He was a soldier who had become a, a monk at that point. He said, remember the day on which you enlisted when buried with Christ in baptism, you swore fealty. That's fealty is an oath of allegiance. You swore fealty to him, declaring that for his sake, you would spare neither father nor mother. The service as authenticated continued then at, until at least the days of Gregory Nazianzen. If we look at Psalm 44.1, uh, and then I'll read from him. So, in the case of, of Gregory, uh, he lived between 329 and 390 AD, uh, and uh, in his Oration 40, he says, Illumination is a splendor of souls. The conversion of the life, the question put to the Godward conscience, and what he what he's talking about with illumination, he's talking about baptism, and the question put to the Godward conscience. He's really saying that um, undertaking this vow, this oath, this baptismal vow, is the answer of a good conscience toward God. <clears throat> right, we're we're we have the proper answer to what uh, to which baptism is an outward expression. So during the period two, during this early church period, covenants were subscribed. I want to look at Romans fifteen nine on this. Confessing among the Gentiles is a reference to covenanting, um, and 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 at some stages, at least of it during this uh, post-apostolic period, those who had become exposed to the censures of the church on being restored were required explicitly to enter into covenant again. Want to compare Amos 1 9, 2 Corinthians 2 8, and Galatians 3 15. Wherefore I beseech you that you would confirm your love towards him. Yeah, so what's the problem? Amos is complaining about they broke the brotherly covenant, <clears throat> which is what happens when people fall under the censures of the church. Uh, they've broken that brotherly covenant, and yet we know that that covenant. When, when Paul says to receive back the incestuous man, he says, confirm your love to him. He's saying, in other words, renew that covenant. The covenant needs to be confirmed. And that's the point of looking at Galatians 3.15. So what happened? Well, Philip Schaff, who was a, a German, uh, he was German reformed. <clears throat> and um, he 
he actually uh, taught um, taught at the uh, I believe the seminary for the German Reformed Church in Pennsylvania. Uh, he wrote a massive history of the Christian Church. Uh, he in in which uh, in volume two, on page two fifty three, uh, he says baptism was not only an act of God, but at the same time the, the most solemn surrender of man to God, a vow for life and death, to live henceforth only to Christ and His people. The keeping of this vow was a condition of continuance in the church. The breaking of it must be followed either by repentance or excommunication. So, <clears throat> the point is this. We know that in the early church, when people uh, broke the vow and were excommunicated, before they would be admitted back in, they had to renew that vow or that covenant. They didn't just let them back. In fact, the word confession that they used, they had to confess their sin. That is, they had to, um, in a sense, regurgitate their heterodox uh, profession of faith or practice. And then they had to once more have confirmed in them their intention to believe and practice that which the church uh, teaches and, and demands. All right, so that's, that's the early church. <coughs> but um, we don't know a lot about the church through the Dark Ages, what we would call the Dark Ages. Uh, but we know that this issue of covenanting becomes very, very prominent at the time of the Reformation. So we're going to look at that next. So question four. Wherein does the practice of the Church of God in the times of the Reformation appear with regard to covenanting? And the answer is, uh, the federal transactions of the churches of the Reformation recommend the duty. So let's, uh, before we start looking at this, let's look at some uh, passages of Scripture. 1 Thessalonians 2.14 Yeah, so the churches of Reformation all have, uh, quite frankly, a common enemy, a common agenda. <clears throat> they want to be reformed from the Roman Catholic Church. Right? They want to move away from that. There's The Roman church is corrupt, and it's corrupting. So they don't want to be any part of that. Now, uh, to what extent the practice of covenanting might have been engaged in by the few in Europe who held the truth during the Dark Ages, the fact is we don't well know. Uh, we just don't have a lot of records from that period, particularly among small groups of people who were holdouts. We do know that those people existed. But let's look at Isaiah 64, 7. Yeah, it, the Dark Ages was simply a time when 
you know, it seemed like virtually no one believed. Uh, but with the dawn of the Reformation came the practice of covenanting. So again, look at Isaiah 4, verses 1 to 6. Isaiah 4, verses 1 to 6. And that day seven women shall take hold of one man, saying, We will eat our own bread and wear our own apparel, and will let us be called by thy name to take away our reproach. And that day shall the branch of the Lord be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the earth shall be excellent and comely for them that are escaped of Israel. It shall come, in, come to pass that he that is left in Zion, he that remaineth in Jerusalem, shall be called holy, and every one that is written among the living in Jerusalem. The Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion, and shall have purged the blood of Jerusalem from the midst thereof by the spirit of judgment, by the spirit of burning. And the Lord will create upon every dwelling place of Mount Zion, and upon her assembly, a cloud and smoke by day, and the shining of a flaming fire by night. For upon all the glory shall be a defense. And there shall be a tabernacle for a shadow in the daytime from the heat, for a place of refuge, and for a covert from storm and from rain. <clears throat> so at the, at the time of the Reformation, if, if the divine favor is, is um, to, be, to be discerned, uh, in what the re the reformers are doing, all right, in the proto-reformers, as we're going to see, we should expect that they are going to covenant because we know this is in this is in fact approved practice by the church and people of God, and it is a practice which manifests the the fact that the Spirit of God is working in them. So we we're, we shouldn't be surprised that. Step by, step by step, the church has proceeded in opposition to popery by solemn engagements. So look at Revelation 14, 8 compared with Jeremiah 50, verses 4 to 8, and Jeremiah 51, 6 to 8. <coughs> Jeremiah 15, verses 4 through 8. In those days and in that time, saith the Lord, the children of Israel shall come, they and the children of Judah together, going weeping, they shall go and seek the Lord their God. They the Zion with their faces the Lord, saying, Come, let us join ourselves to the Lord in a perpetual covenant that shall not be forgotten. My people have been lost sheep, their shepherds have caused them to go astray. They have turned them away on the mountains, they have gone to the mountains and hill, they have forgotten their resting place. Some men have devoured them, and their adversaries said, We have done not because they have sinned against the Lord, the habitation of justice, even the Lord, the hope of their fathers. We will go to the midst of Babylon, and the forest out of the land of the Chaldeans, and be as the heroes before the flocks. Lord's vengeance, he will render unto her a recompense. Babylon hath been a golden cup in the Lord's hand, and they all have drunken, have drunken, drunken over wine, therefore they should have been ahead. Babylon has suddenly fallen and destroyed, hallowed for her, take long for her pain, for these Okay, so last time, I believe it was, we, we talked about the fact that when it was prophesied that when Israel was restored from Babylonian captivity, among other things, that they would um, 
covenant, and they did. We saw it in Ezra. We saw it in Nehemiah. It's one of the things that they do when they come back. Well, that example, uh, prophetically, when we understand that the Roman church is Babylon in Revelation, that example, again, confirms to us uh, that it is actually even more appropriate in some regard for the churches of the Reformation to engage in this covenanting behavior um, than, uh, than any other example. In other words, they have not only the approved example of the people of God in history, but they have the approved example of the people of God in a situation which is prophetically <clears throat> um, anticipating the reformation of the church. So to see them covenant should not be a surprise. right? By them, the friends of truth were united together. First, first Samuel 18.3 and Acts 17.33 and 34. 1 Samuel 18.3 Then Jonathan and David made a covenant because he loved him in his soul. <clears throat> so again, you know, friends of the truth, well, you know, it's it's not unusual for them to to bind themselves together with an oath or a vow or to covenant together. And we see that. Uh, both in the Old and New Testaments. By them where they stood successively through grace, they triumphed. And even when they fell, they knew not to flee. So look at Revelation 12, uh, verses 10 through 12. Revelation 12, verses 10 through 12. And I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now is the salvation and strength of the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ. For the accuser of our brothers cast down, which accused them before our God day and night. They never came in by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they loved not their lives unto the death. Therefore rejoice, ye heavens, and ye that dwell in them. Close to the inhabitants of the earth, and of the sea, the devil has come down unto you, having great wrath, because he knoweth that he has punishment of time. So again, the, the idea here is that the um, those who are faithful are, are going to stand... Um, and even when they fall, they, they, they don't flee. They're not fleeing. They're, they're, in other words, they're martyrs for the truth. <clears throat> and the church is full of that. All right, so uh, the last thing we're going to look at then is the history of the church's reformation as written in her covenants. So I want to divide it into two sections. I'm going to spend a little bit more time on um, the non-British covenanting. Because that's all we're going to cover. This is the only time I'm really going to cover this. Uh, at the end, we're just going to mention briefly, we'll get into uh, the National Covenant, the Psalm Leaguing Covenant, and and uh, things like the Arkansas Renovation. Um, those will be up in future weeks, uh, Lord willing. We'll, I'll be discussing them in more detail because they have more immediate bearing on our situation and on, on our 
um, our state. Uh, but let's look at what they did in Europe. First, then, the federal transactions of the churches of the European continent. Uh, we have the Waldensian and Bohemian churches, notably led the way by covenanting. Uh, again, look at Song of Solomon 1, 7, and 8. Song of Solomon 1, 7, and 8. How many of thou, my soul loveth, where thou feedest, and thou makest thy flock to rest in beauty? For why should I be as one that turneth aside by the flocks of thy companions? Not know not, or thou fairest among women. Go thy way forth by the footsteps of the flock, and feed thy kids beside the shepherd's tents. Yeah, so again, we, we can only imagine the situation during the Dark Ages. And as I said, we don't have a lot of information about all of the different people that stayed out of the Romish apostasy. But we know that there are a couple of, of groups of people. Uh, one of the largest is probably the Waldensians. Um, and to a certain extent, they're, geographically, they were, they were in the Alps and, and uh, that geographical isolation probably helped them remain aloof from what was going on in Rome. Um, the Waldenses, or excuse me, the Bohemians, <clears throat> we're talking about, um, now we're talking about Czechoslovakia, that region, or the Czech Republic, I should say, uh, and Slovakia. Uh, it's no longer Czechoslovakia, it's a couple of countries. But anyway, um, that area, uh, we had... Jerome of Prague, we had John Huss. John, John Huss is a very important figure uh, in the, in the um, history of the Reformation. He's, uh, he's put to death uh, almost exactly 100 years before Luther shows up. <clears throat> anyway, uh, we have the Waldensians and the um, uh, Bohemian churches, and we know that the there two confessions of faith of the Waldensians are valuable monuments. Look at the Proverbs It's 20, 23, 10. That's what it should be. Proverbs 23, verse 10. Remove not the old landmark and enter not the fields of the fatherless. Yeah, so. Remove not the old landmarks. <coughs> oh, it's a, it was Proverbs 22, 28 as well. So those verses both tell us not to remove the ancient landmarks and the, the confessions of faith of the Waldenses are actually very in, interesting and instructive. 
because we see that they doctrinally are very much like the um, uh, the Protestants. Uh, doctrinally, they they resemble the Protestants and probably more the Reformed than the Lutherans when it comes to the Protestant Reformation. So, um, uh, we know that some Waldensies, in fact, who settled in Bohemia are understood to become the followers of John Huss. 1 Corinthians 16, 15. Look at that verse, please. The first fruits of Achaia, they have addicted themselves to the Right. So, <clears throat> uh, and we know that these Waldensies, Bohemians, frequently practice covenanting. Uh, take a look at Ezekiel t- uh, 20, verse 37. Ezekiel 20, verse 37. And I will cause you to pass under the rod, and I will bring you into the bond of the covenant. So, what do we know about them? I want to read a couple of things from a couple of histories here. Well, actually, uh, I'm just going to read at this point from. Um, uh, Reformation principles exhibited, which was the RP, uh, the the so-called American testimony of the RP Church. <clears throat> but this is what they say <clears throat> on pages. Um, this this is all found between pages 46 and 49 of the first edition. Uh, the creed of the Church of the Waldenses, however, was truly evangelical, and the order of the Church in their terms of communion, form of government exercises of worship and administration of discipline was strictly Presbyterian. Uh, To the preservation of their ecclesiastical order, they were bound by oath. In other words, they covenanted, right? Nor was any considered as belonging to this church who did not take the covenant. God in his providence did in these churches not only preserve a seed to serve him and prepare his children for glory, but he also provided a seminary for the instruction of ministers and saints who should afterwards be instrumental in overturning the empire of the papacy. The persecutions of these witnesses were frequent and bloody. They were scattered among the nations and carried with them their knowledge, their piety, and their forms of religious worship. In the 13th century, they spread and prevailed so far that the Pope thought it necessary to exert his utmost efforts to suppress them. They were found in Germany, Bohemia, Poland, France, and Britain. It is computed that in France alone, one million of them suffered martyrdom. They were, however, remarkably preserved in some of these countries in which they had been banished, and, like the scattered Jews before the coming of Christ in the flesh, were preparing the way of the Lord in the different parts of the world. In the beginning of the 14th century, there were about 80,000 of these covenanters in Austria and the neighboring territories. They everywhere adhered to their covenant engagements, and pertinaciously opposed popery, and defended their own principles even unto death. And then they go on to say <clears throat> of John Huss, uh, John Huss was a man of distinguished talents and erudition, professor of divinity at the celebrated University of Prague, uh, had together with his intimate, his intimate friend Jerome, embraced many of the doctrines of the Waldensians. Although in the communion of the Roman Church, they recommended the works of Wycliffe, and vainly suppose that their exertions might serve to reform the church and recall her from Babylon. They were, however, successful in exciting an uncommon interest for a reformation, and directing the Germans to a more favorable opinion of those old dissenters, the Waldenses who lived among them. After the death of Huss, a number of 
who had been influenced by his doctrines, actually joined the Church of the Waldenses, who were settled in Bohemia. They adopted one confession of faith. They also agreed upon one covenant suited to the present state of the church, which according to the established usage of the Waldensians, uh, or the Waldenses, was subscribed by all the members of the society. Voetius, uh, who had a good opportunity of knowing, assures us that both the Waldenses of Toulouse, France, and the Hussites of Bohemia ratified their federal transactions with a solemn oath. So again, we see that they're covenanting, and they're interested in covenant. And uh, Jerome, or excuse me, uh, John John Huss, um, when he died, it was actually prophesied at the time that a hundred years after that, uh, that someone would arise from his ashes, and the Pope wouldn't be able to get him like he got Huss. And and uh, interestingly enough, that probably um, that was Luther. Uh, so, in fact, almost certainly was Luther. Uh, the churches of the Waldenses and of the Protestants of Germany in November 1571, they entered into a solemn covenant engagement in which was made a profession of their faith and a resolution to adhere to the true Christian Reformed religion. I want to look at 2 Chronicles 23.1. 2 Chronicles 23. <coughs> in the seventh year, so when we when we look at at what they did um, they renew covenant they enter into a solemn covenant engagement so this is from Alexis Muston, a book called The Israel of the Alps. Uh, he says <clears throat> that the Waldenses, seeing the system of persecution once more in such active operation, deemed it necessary to renew among themselves that oath of allegiance and Christian combination, which had been instrumental to their late triumphs. And they accordingly, on the 11th of November, 1571, signed by the representatives at Bobbio the following convention, quote, When any one of our churches shall be impeached individually, all the rest combined shall reply as with one mouth in assertion of the common rights. No one of us shall adopt any determination in such a manner without consulting his brethren. All of us solemnly promise and swear to adhere perseveringly to the ancient union transmitted to us by our fathers, never to abandon our holy religion, and to remain faithful to our lawful sovereigns, unquote. <clears throat> so the Waldenses were covenanters. Uh, previous to this, by the way, the famous League of Smokhult, which was renewed in 1536, uh, the Protestant princes and people of Germany became engaged, maintained together the doctrine and truth of the gospel, and the peace and tranquility in the empire and German nation. We'll look at 1 Kings 5.12, and then I'll read about that. <clears throat> yeah, so the, um, the small called league <coughs> uh, was generally uh, Lutheran, um, 
and it was a Protestant league against the Roman Catholic forces who were trying to suppress them at the time. So John Scott, in his History of the Church of Christ, says uh, Luther, in his appropriate way, did his part to fortify the minds of the people and to support the great cause of the Reformation. The princes and states also did the same in their way. They held various meetings and formed leagues for mutual defense. The landgrave were impetuous than the rest and less averse to the doctrine of the Swiss reformers respecting the sacrament, that is, he's talking about the Reformed Reformation, as early as the month of November 1530, entered into alliance with Zurich, Basel, and Strasbourg. The next month, and also in March following, he and the other Protestant leaders met at Smalkald in Upper Saxony and laid the foundation of the famous league which took its name from that place. Seven princes in 24 cities entered into the league. And then Herzog, in his Protestant Theological and Ecclesiastical Encyclopedia, says of this, a peace was also established in 1536 at Wittenberg between the two leading parties of the Protestants, which, with the renewal of the Smalkald League and its extension for 10 years, gave them more respectability and political importance. So this, again, the Lutherans are using covenanting as a way of uh, finding mutual support, defense, and advancing the Reformation in the face of a very defensive Roman church. The Romanists actually will form a, a league of their own <clears throat> in order to counter this. All right, in the Reformed churches, covenanting was common. Uh, Psalm 50, verse 5. Psalm 50, verse 5. Gather my saints together unto me, that I may bless them that sacrifice. And we know that. Um, uh, according to Beza, in July 20th, 1537, uh, the capital or chief articles of Christian religion and discipline were sworn by the Senate and people of Geneva at Bern, uh, or excuse me, with Bern and Lausanne being included in that league. Look at uh, First, Second Chronicles 15, 12 to 15. Second Chronicles 15, 12 to 15. <clears throat> they entered into a covenant to seek the Lord God and their fathers with all their heart and with all their soul. That whosoever would not seek the Lord God of Israel should be put to death, whether small or great, whether man or woman. And swear unto the Lord with a loud voice, and with shouting, and with trumpets, and with cornets. And all Judah rejoiced at the oath, for they had sworn with all their heart, and sought him with their whole desire. And he was kind of them, and the Lord gave them rest round about. Uh, Beza, in his life of Calvin, says this took place in August uh, 1536, a year which is also remarkable for the strict alliance that was formed between the two cities of Bern and Geneva and for the accession of Lausanne to the Reformation after a free discussion with the papists in which Calvin took part. He says, at this time, Calvin published a short formula of Christian doctrine adopted to the Church of Geneva, which had just escaped from the pollutions of the papists. To this, he appended a catechism, not the one that we have now, uh, in the form of question and answer, but another much shorter, containing only the leading heads of religion. Endeavoring afterwards with Farrell and Carl to settle the affairs of the church, uh, most of his colleagues from timidity, keeping aloof from the contest, and some of them, uh, this gave Calvin the greatest uneasiness, even secretly impeding the work of the Lord. His first object was to obtain from the citizens, at a meeting attended by the whole body of the people, 
an open abjuration of the papacy and an oath of adherence to the Christian religion and its discipline as comprehended under a few heads. Although not a few refused, as might have been expected, the city which had just been delivered from the snares of the Duke of Savoy and the yoke of Antichrist, in which factions still greatly prevailed, yet by the good hand of the Lord, on the 20th of July, 1537, the clerk of the city taking the lead, the Senate and people of Geneva solemnly declared their adherence to the leading doctrines and discipline of the Christian religion. And so they did this. We know that, um, uh, I don't remember if this is the same time, we know that uh, the Germans actually, uh, at one point when they were doing one of these covenants in Geneva, object uh, because they're, they don't want to be reformed, they want to be Lutheran, and a whole bunch of Germans just left rather than take the oath. <clears throat> but this was going on in Geneva. Uh, the churches of Holland and of Hungary and Transylvania and others on the continent of Europe had recourse to like manner of solemn vows. Look first at Psalm 65 1. Psalm 65 verse 1. Praise waited for God in Zion, and shall the vow be performed. Yeah, so, uh, let, let me say before I read about the Dutch Reformed and the, the uh, Hungarian Reformed, <clears throat> and even the, uh, the Swedish Lutherans on this point of covenanting, uh, there is one thing I want to call attention to here, and that is Zepherus, William Zepherus and his political ecclesiastica uh, notes of, of the Reformed, and he's dealing with the Swiss Reformed and the German Reformed. He says, when persons are admitted to the Lord's table, they make a public profession of their faith before all the church, and likewise promise and covenant that they will continue in that faith and lead their lives accordingly. So just at that level, we see a, a continuity with the early church in these churches. Anyway, moving on to the Dutch. Uh, Edward Corwin, in his History of the Reformed Church, uh, the Reformed Dutch Church, says, in 1565, a covenant was entered into by a few patriots of Brussels to resist the Spanish yoke and the introduction of the Inquisition. The following year, 400 nobles went on foot to the court of the regent Margaret of Parma, natural daughter of Charles V, and earnestly petitioned for protection from persecution and for religious toleration. One of the councillors referred to the petitioners coming as they did on foot as a troop of beggars. The phrase was overheard, and at the banquet that evening was eagerly adopted by the young nobles as a party name, a Ligue. A league was formed called the League of Beggars. The term became a rallying cry of great power. Uh, Orange, Egmont, and Horn, though they had at first stood aloof, dropped in at the banquet of the nobles and drank health to the beggars, as if by common instinct, the people everywhere accepted of the title, wore medals to indicate their position. Uh, delegations were sent to Philip to ask for relief, but they accomplished nothing. Field preaching now, under the protection of armed men, did much to evangelize the people and inspire them to resist oppression. Herman Stryker and John Arnston, Ar Arnst Arnston uh, were among the first of these field preachers, and the practice soon spread over all the land. 
hymns of Beza and Moreau. He's talking about the Psalms. Uh, we're also of great service, not only for devotion, but for instruction and exciting and in exciting enthusiasm. People soon rose in their might, and the churches throughout the land were quickly shorn of the symbols of superstition and idolatry. Monasteries and nunneries were destroyed. Uh, the church buildings were whitewashed to indicate their purification, and preaching and simple devotions took the place of ceremonialism. The lily among thorns became the emblem of the church. Then uh, Motley in his Rise of the Dutch Republic says, nobles who listened to uh, Francis Junius, he was a reformed theologian, were occupied with grave discourse after the conclusion of religious exercises. Junius took no part in their conversation, but in his presence it was resolved that a league against the barbarous and violent inquisition should be formed, and that confederates should mutually bind themselves both within and without the Netherlands to this great purpose. So, that was in 1566. This is very early on, uh, and this is this is all part of what leads to the complete Reformation of Holland. Right? In fact, I, I believe it, it leads to the um, the formation of the Republic. All right. Um, with respect to the Hungarian Church, uh, Bahofer in his History of the Protestant Church in Hungary writes. Where so little good was to be expected from Rome, it was very natural that the friends of truth and freedom of conscience should unite closely together. In the forest and town of Erlau, which belonged to the family of Perenye, we find accordingly an interesting covenanting scene in 1561. All the troops, both horse and foot, stationed in Erlau, with the nobles and citizens, bound themselves solemnly by oath not to forsake the truth, and as a testimony of their earnestness, they prepared a confession of faith corresponding with the Swiss confession and a covenant which they publicly signed. This document was sent to Debrexen and the neighboring parishes where it was also signed. So we see, again, Holland, Hungary, uh, the, the Hungarian Reformed, they're using this covenanting to advance themselves. Puffendorf, in his Introduction to the History of the Principal Kingdoms and States of Europe says, at the same diet the Popish religion was quite abolished, uh, he's talking about Sweden here, and the Lutheran religion established in Sweden, the king and the estates having obliged themselves by a solemn oath to maintain the same with all their power. So again, what's happening? They're using covenanting, even the Lutherans. And this continues among the Lutherans. The use of social covenanting was nobly illustrated in 1731 when a number of Lutherans in the Austrian dominions were about to be cruelly extirpated for their attachment to the truth, pledged themselves to adhere to it by a covenant of salt. Look at 2 Chronicles 13.5. Yeah, so what's going on here? Well, we, we know, and this is Chadwick's Nationalities of Europe and the Growth of National Ideologies, says in Austria, the hereditary dominion of the Habsburgs, that modern nationalism seems first to have shown itself. In the 16th and especially 17th centuries, the Habsburgs were responsible for more religious persecution than any other Christian dynasty of which we have record. 
as a result of this, the reformed religion was almost entirely destroyed, except in Hungary, the greater part of which was then under Turkish rule. But there are a couple of accounts of this activity, um, this covenant of salt. In, in a couple of uh, Lutheran papers, one is the Lutheran Church Review, says the Lutherans now also felt they needed a closer union in order as one man to defend their faith. So on August 5th, 1731, about 300 men met at Schwarzach and entered into a covenant, a covenant of salt, to remain steadfast in their faith at any cost. The Lutheran witness which is a little earlier account, says the old forms of oppression were resumed, the evangelicals left to the mercy of their enemies. Such treatment brought home to the oppressed portion of the Salzburgers. By the way, it's called Salzburg because they had a huge salt mine there. So the story is, as they tell here, uh, it was only with profoundest sorrow they could think of leaving their beautiful native country, but there was no other way of escaping continual torments. Thus it happened the Lutheran congregations of Salzburg appointed from their number the most pious and wise men to meet in convention on a certain day and consult on the proper course for them to pursue. On the 5th of August, 1731, more than a hundred representative men descended from their hills into the lonely vale called Schwarzach. The beauty and quiet of an early Sunday morning surrounded them as they uncovered their heads and folded their hands in one another brotherly love and unshaken fidelity in their common affliction. Then they tasted with silent tears the salt in token of their covenant. This they called their covenant of salt. Uh, they also resolved to send deputies to the Protestant princes of, Europe, of Germany to implore their aid in emigration and furnish them new homes. So what they did is they said they took a bowl of salt. Uh, the accounts I read of it said they took a big bowl of salt. They had it there and they were dipping their fingers and tasting it as they were weeping over their situation. And they pledged themselves together. Um, and actually, the Salzburger Lutherans ended up emigrating, a lot of them, to Georgia. Um, that's where they went from there. Anyway, practice of covenanting extended to America, where settlers from Europe at Salem in 1629, by covenanting, solemnly incorporated themselves into the Church of Christ. I want to look first at First Kings 8.21. And um, the next here, and in a moment I'll, I'll read a second one, but this is from Cotton Mather's Magnalia Christi Americana. He says, Mr. Higginson and Mr. Skelton and other good people that arrived at Salem, he's talking about Massachusetts, in the year 1629, resolved like their father Abraham to begin their plantation with calling on the name of the Lord. The great Mr. Hildersham, had advised our first planters to agree fully upon their form of church government before their coming into New England. But they had indeed agreed little further than in this general principle, that the reformation of the church was to be endeavored according to the written word of God. Accordingly, ours, now arrived at Salem, consulted with their brethren at Plymouth what steps to take for the more exact acquainting of themselves with and conforming themselves to that written word, and the Plymouthians, to their great satisfaction, laid before them their warrant. They judged that they had in the laws of our Lord Jesus Christ for every particular in the church order. Whereupon, having the concurrence and countenance of their deputy governor, the worshipful John Endicott, 
and the approving presence of the messengers from the Church of Plymouth, they set apart the sixth day of August after their arrival for fasting and prayer, for settling of a church state among them, and for making a confession of their faith and entering into an holy covenant whereby that church state was formed. Uh, and then 47 years later, in 1676, a synod met at Boston for the purpose of covenant renewal or renovation or renewal in order to restrain the growing outbreaks of public immorality as well as other heaven-provoking sins in church and state. I look first at Second Chronicles 23.16. 2 Chronicles 23, verse 15. And Jehoiada made a covenant between him and between all the people and between the king that they should be the Lord's people. So, again, Cotton Mather says in his Magnalia Christi Americana, in this renewal of covenant, there were some churches who, from I know not what objections, of there being no express warrant for it in the New Testament, and they're doing it implicitly in every act of divine worship, and the imaginary danger of innovations would not comply with the advice of the Synod. But all the virgins were not so sleepy, and very remarkable was the blessing of God upon the churches, which did not so sleep, not only by a great advancement of holiness in the people, who in their lesser societies for the exercises of religion, as well as in their privacies and retirements, often peruse the copies of their covenants, but also by great addition of converts under their holy fellowship. In short, many of the churches under the conduct of their holy pastors, having on previous days of fasting and prayer, set apart for, the, for that purpose, considered the expectations of God concerning them, they were willing anew to declare their most explicit consent under the covenant of grace, and most explicitly to engage a growing watchfulness in such duties of the covenant as were more peculiarly accommodated under their present circumstances. So those were all examples to show that the Reformed and even the Lutherans uh, were not strangers to this idea of covenanting. Uh, we're going to finish just briefly. We're going to look, secondly, the covenant engagements of the church in Britain and Ireland. Look at 2 Kings 11, 4. Uh, Scotland was honored, in fact, early in the Reformation to declare valiantly for the truth. Look at Psalm 60, verse 12. Psalm 60, verse 12. God, we shall do valiantly, for he it is that God is. Through God, we shall do valiantly. Um, though Patrick Hamilton and George Wissert and other noble confessors and martyrs were soon sacrificed, uh, look at Luke 11:51. The blood of Abel and the blood of Zacharias was buried between the altar and the temple. Verily I say unto you, it shall be required of this generation. Uh, still it pleased God to place a safeguard around a John Knox and others that the truth might be diffused. Job 1.10 Hast not thou made a hedge about him, about his house, and about all that he hath on every side? Thou hast blessed the work of his hands, and his substance is increased in the land. So, the, it's it's a very interesting um, phenomenon 
that, you know, John Knox never gets martyred, uh, even though he was probably more pointed and more controversial than any of the people that got burned at the stake. The guy who was actually the, the probably the biggest problem for the queen at the time uh, and resisted the, the Roman church, he escapes martyrdom somehow. Um, but nonetheless, the, the fact is that these church, the, the Scottish church is interested in this idea of covenanting, not least of which, uh, re, as far as rationale, remember John Knox studied with Calvin in Geneva, and remember that they were covenanting in Geneva. <clears throat> so he would have been familiar with this. Um, when the rulers of the nation were wholly devoted to popery, in the goodness of God and mercy, in God's mercy, he saw me to put into their hearts of some of the nobles and of many of the people to offer themselves willingly by covenanting to use means to effect its removal, the removal of popery. So look at First Samuel 20, verse 16. Samuel 20, verse 16. Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, that the Lord even required at the hand of David's enemies. That the Lord even required at the hand of David's enemies. Okay, so leading up to the national covenant, <clears throat> there's a first covenant against popery, uh, which was ratified in Edinburgh in December of 1557. The next was entered into at Perth in May of 1559. A third was made at Stirling in August of 1559, fourth at Edinburgh in April 1560, and then there was a fifth, which through the exertions of John Knox and George Hayes was made at Ayr in September of 1562. We'll look at First Chronicles 16:15. 16, 15. <clears throat> and you know, I have the, the text of all these different covenants. Um, uh, most of them are short, uh, but in each one of them, if you were to look at them and they're, they're in, included in the paper, <clears throat> there's a consolidation <clears throat> of focus um, to, to turn their attention toward Reformation and away from Popery. All right, so with that consolidation, as a result of that, um, by 1580, we get to the time of the National Covenant. Right? It was also called the King's Confession. It's drawn up by John Craig, <coughs> who also has um, an excellent catechism. And it was directed against the whole of the Romish corruptions, and that was entered into on 1580. I'm going to look at Revelation 18.4. I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, that you be not partakers of sins and not of her plagues. So, the, you know, the point of all of this is what? They want to see everyone brought out of popery. They want the whole nation brought out of popery, and the national covenant is to do this. And then in the next year, 1581, the General Assembly sanctioned the covenant and the church received it. Look at Isaiah 52, 11. Isaiah 52, verse 11. Go ye out of the midst of her, clean and bear the vessels of the Lord. 
and it was renewed in 1590 and also again in 1596. Uh, look at 2 Corinthians 6.17. So in each of these cases, the concern is a renewed concern for separation from the corruption of Rome. All right. And, and this is, remember, this is growing out of <coughs> the, the covenanting that is finally headed up by John Knox. And then we have this national covenant. And at each point where there's some resolve to fight Romish corruption, they renew the covenant. But then there's a long lull, and I'm not going to get into all the history or, or even a lot of things here, because as I said, uh, we're going to be talking about the National Covenant in more detail later, as well as the Solemn League. But I just want to point out the overview and continuity here. Um, on the 28th of February, 1638, the covenant, with an addition that was virtually directed against uh, prelacy, was renewed at Great Friars Church in Edinburgh. I want to look at Third John 9. Yeah, so by 1638, after suffering under the, the prelates, the, the bishops, the Presbyterian party had concluded that we're not really going to ever get anywhere, we're never going to keep the corruptions out as long as we let the bishops in. Right. It, they had wanted to get rid of them for some time, but this was sort of the definitive, we're putting our foot down, no more of this. So thousands had assembled, solemnity was accompanied with prayer and fasting, and was the most profound, with the most profound emotions, the covenant was sworn and subscribed. Uh, look at Lamentations 341. Lamentations 341. Let us lift up our heart with our hands unto God in our hands. And so as a manifestation of attachment to the cause of the covenant, they lifted up the banner. And they, this is when they started using this phrase uh, for Christ's crown and covenant. And they're interested in the banner uh, that they're, they're going to press the claims of this covenant because they want the church to be reformed. Look at Psalm 60, verse 4. Psalm 60, verse 4. Thou hast given a banner to them that fear thee, that may be displayed because of the truth they love. And we say that these covenants are still binding on those who are contemplated in their taking. We're going to get into this more in detail in the future, Lord willing. But look at Deuteronomy 5, 2, and 3. And um, as Scotland is undergoing all of this agitation and they're trying to get rid of and purify, you know, a reform, I should say, the church. Get rid of these bishops. Uh, for a number of reasons, they are in negotiations with England. And in consequence of the negotiations between England and Scotland, in August of 1643, they end up subscribing the Solemn League and Covenant. So the Solemn League and Covenant sworn. And again, being scriptural in matter, it remains binding in everything that is moral and not circumstantial. We get Numbers 30, verse 2. Mm -hmm. 
And we know that these covenants, the National Covenant, the Psalm Legion Covenant, were renewed with various additions on various occasions. And um, those renewals were done by the church are, are such they remain binding on those taken into them, those who are contemplated in the, in the renewing of them. Uh, and just again, Deuteronomy 23, 21. One, one thou shalt vow the vow unto the Lord thy God, thou shalt not slack to pay it. For the Lord thy God will surely require it of thee, it would be spent in thee. Okay, so in in um, conclusion, uh, we're gonna we will be spending more time, Lord willing, on the National Covenant, the Psalm Legion Covenant, particularly the Arkansas renovation of those covenants. Um and that's why I didn't spend time here on that now. But I just want you to have a sense of an overview and understand that this didn't come out of nowhere, uh, that this is not something weird or peculiar that only the Scots were doing. Right? There is um, precedent, not just in the Bible, but there was precedent, a widespread precedent, Amongst the churches of the Reformation, Lutheran and Reformed, they're doing this to advance the Reformation. And so when the Scottish church does this, when they start doing all of this, it's not as if other Reformed churches or even Lutheran churches would have been sitting there saying, what are they doing and why? There's plenty of context for everyone at the time to understand. It seems odd now because the church is so far from this. But at that time, it seemed normal, natural, and really part of the Reformation program. All right. So before we get into the National Covenant, the Psalm Covenant, and, and so on, uh, next time, Lord willing, we will be talking about seasons of covenanting and, and how we know it's time to renew those covenants or take covenants.